for the younger generation out there, you have to know where everything came from, especially here in in the U.S. And mm-hmm. I think that you have to, and I'm not saying to pay homage and like to put people on pedestals, but I'm like, understand the sacrifice that people made, whether it's on the men's side or women's side, to elevate our sport. You know, security had to come get off us off the field because we didn't want to stop signing autographs. You know, we would stop and talk to every, everybody. We'd do grassroots events. We had to build this sport. And when you're getting on chartered flights and when you're doing this and you're doing that, remember that that didn't exist. Remember that we stayed in roach motels. Remember that we didn't have clothes. We had to give our practice uniforms back before we went home. Like, remember all of those things to understand where you are today. That was our guest for today, 99 World Cup winning goalkeeper, Suskia Weber. And my name is Omar Zini. Welcome to the Life Through Sport podcast. Before the NWSL and before the likes of Alex Morgan, Megan Rapinoe, and Carly Lloyd, you had the 99ers. Suskie on the 99ers captured the imagination of the American public and what soccer could be in the United States after they famously defeated China in a penalty kick shootout in the World Cup final in front of 90,000 fans. Winning the World Cup would become the cultural moment and narrative shift that many on the team had fought for their entire careers. And as we dive into Suskia's story throughout the episode, you will realize that the 99 team was not only composed of some of the greatest players in the history of the game, but they also included courageous women who were powerful advocates for women's rights and equality in sports. Now with that being said, let's get to know one of the team's core pieces and a great friend of mine, Suskia Weber. Once again, you're listening to the Life Through Sport podcast. My name is Omar Zini. Enjoy the show. Saskia Weber, how you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm staring at your rings. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're there. I definitely, like I told you, LAFC, I didn't really do too much for the <laughs> for the team, but uh, the Cal State LA one, uh, even though that last year I didn't do a ton with the team because we were Las Vegas traveling, I still feel like the culmination of all the years that I was there. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You got to wear them. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so you're you're embarking on a new journey now with commentating for the NWSL. How has that been? It's it's amazing. Honestly, it started last year. Um, I did got the call from Angel City to do the local Bally Sport West broadcast uh, with Marco Gandino and got thrown into the deep end. It was like, hey, get on a plane. Actually, it's a funny story. I didn't realize we did all the games out of a studio Mm. in Fort Lauderdale and um, Angel City was playing against Orlando. So I was like, oh, I'm going to Orlando. Like, because they're like, you're flying to Florida. And I landed in Fort Lauderdale and I'm just like, wait, what? <laughs> I'm like, they're like, no, you're out of a studio. Um, so we, I started off doing that. I did eight games. And then um, the beginning of the year, oh, a little bit before that, the, the NWSL called and they were just like, we want to bring you in with the team. And it's been awesome. I've done two games so far. I've got about four, four games a month. Okay. So I'm busy. Yeah, yeah. And then I still have Bally Sport West. Wow, so you're doing a lot. Yeah. So I will be like an encyclopedia <laughs> eventually. <laughs> what have you, uh, what have been like some of the challenges that you've had early on? I think for me, it's just, you know, it, I love working with Mark with Bally Sport West and everything. And now I got to work with JP and JP used to call my games. And so that was funny, but it's just getting to, to learn your play by play and, um, before, honestly, before it was focusing on Angel City, so it was like Angel City. So mm-hmm. we're very pro Angel City and everything. <laughs> and now it's like really learning every single team, every single player, like really, really in depth and kind of being impartial, mm. but still having my excitement. I love <laughs> so, that. Yeah. Because we'll get to it, but you are a, a part owner of Angel City. So yes. like you said, you have to be partial and make sure that you're uh, not, not speaking too highly of just Angel City. Right. Well, I don't do any Angel City games for league. Just for Bally Sports, so right. it makes sense then. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. good. Well, we can, we'll, we'll get into all that stuff, but I definitely want to just tap into you a little bit and, and ask you, in this chapter of your life, if you had to put a name on the chapter that you're going through in your book, what would it be? Uh, act two, without a doubt. Um, that's what I've been calling it. Because, you know, after after we won the 99 World Cup, after we started the first, you know, the WSA and everything, and the league shut down, and I retired, and I stepped away from soccer... I think that I wanted to get into commentating. I wanted to be involved with soccer on a different level after I retired. Mm-hmm. But the opportunities weren't there. So like the only people they were hiring was like would be Julie Foudy, which is great. She's the best. But that was it. And so time went on and time went on and I was like I think I missed my window to really get involved and do this and you know, they're younger kids that are retiring and so on and so forth. They'll they'll pinch 
And the fact that all of this has happened in the past two years, it's act two, mm. without a doubt. I will say, getting to know you on a personal side, <laughs> I feel like the game needs someone like you in the sense of just being unapologetic and being someone who is going <laughs> to speak their mind and speak their thoughts. And I feel like it's ring, rung true. And I'm sure the audience over time will start to see that with you to get to know you a little bit more uh, as I have and as, as many people off the field have as well. So I'm excited for you. I think it's a act two is the proper way to do it, but also to your act one wasn't too bad. No, <laughs> it's a lot to live up to. Yeah. Um, no, I've gotten great feedback. And from, you know, the 99ers and everybody that they're listening and I'll get comments throughout the game on text <laughs> and everything, but it's great. And, and to be able to kind of infuse a little history in the commentating as well. Uh, I think when I throw out some names, like some kids are probably like, oh, because <laughs> they weren't born yet. But, um, you know, it keeps our history alive. Yeah, I love that. What's what's interesting to me is so many of the players that I've interviewed and, and communicated with who are currently in the NWSL and even coaches who are in the collegiate ranks, they talk about that 99 team and how much of an impact you guys made. So it would be nice for you to continue that legacy, but also too for the older generation maybe to have a younger, excuse me, to have a okay. recognizable <laughs> voice uh, commentating the games. Yeah, it's it's fun. You know, like I said, Foudy's out there. You have Allie Wagner. Some of the older guard, Allie wasn't on 919, but she still just does an amazing job commentating. And Julie's Julie. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's she's the best. <laughs> but, you know, I like that. I, like I said, like in the game, I brought up a joke and I use like Lori Fair's name and stuff. And, you know, some of the young younger players might not know that and they need to. Mm -hmm. That's part of the history and the reason we are where we are today. Love that. <laughs> With the not chaos, but how life is, it's controlled chaos. I feel like, you know, uh, I was listening to my friend's podcast and one of his guests, uh, he asked him how they're doing. And she said, you know, I just feel like there's controlled fires all around me constantly. And so I want to ask you in this state of life, in the act two that you're in, how are you really doing? I am good. I feel like my head's going to explode. You know, I, I went to South Africa for 72 hours to do um, an appearance for FIFA. Then I came back and then I had to go to Florida. I'm not complaining by any way, shape or form, but it's it's a lot to wrap your head around and it's constant, constantly changing. I need an assistant. <laughs> I don't make enough to have an assistant, but uh, it's a lot. It's controlled chaos is a good word for mm. it. Have you been able to manage all of it then? I, I'm not sure if I have. <laughs> like, really just one foot in front of the other. Just trying to make priorities and really just focus on what needs to be done that week or that day. Trying to get back to people. And, you know, it was so quiet for so long. So to go from like zero to 100, it takes some getting used to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but so you, you've had that energy in you for this act too. Yeah. No, I wanted it. I was there. I mean, I think that's why I was brought in because, you know me, I'm, I'm like the one that's always like, yeah, sure, whatever, you know, whatever you want. I'm there, whatever you need. Maybe I should stop saying that <laughs> right now, but it's a good chaos. It's a good stress. Mm -hmm. Like I'd rather the noise and the fires than nothing. And now that you being put out there to the, the new crowd and the mm -hmm. new people out there, and then as well, being on the 99 team and having your career at Rutgers, being an All-American, being, uh, I think, the first female athlete to be inducted into the Hall of Fame. So you have so many accolades. So now crossing paths with the new generation, what do you feel have been some common misperceptions about you? Um, crossing paths is actually really funny. I was doing a photo shoot for Angel City with Mark and all the team was there. I was like fangirling. <laughs> I was like, because <laughs> I just call their names from behind the screen. Um, misconception. I don't know if anything's wrong. <laughs> I'd have to go back and read. I'm sure they're they're probably right in some way at some point in time. Um, um I don't really know if there are any mix misconceptions. I had a I had a, a fun, an intense, a crazy career in Act One, and um, no no apologies. I'm not apologizing <laughs> for anything at all <laughs> i love that i love that and for all the people you've come across then how do you think i guess maybe the 99ers and all the people who you've crossed paths with now as a coach how would they describe suske weber what you see is what you get total energy passionate and um just i'm a friend to everybody 
You know, like I, I respect everybody, no matter what level you're at, whether you're a world champion or you're a kid in AYSO or a parent asking a question to, you know, an executive asking a question. I take it all as important. There's nobody more important, nobody less important to me. That's how I've always been. That's how I'll always be. Do you feel like that has helped you as a coach? Across the board, it's helped me. I think, you know, you give respect to get respect, and I always have. I truly think that is why I have a second act, you know, because I wasn't like, all right, I'm closing the door on that. Thanks, everybody. I'm off doing my thing. And, you know, I've always just been accessible and honest. And like I said, you, you know, I treat everybody equally. And I think that that's why the door opened back up and people came knocking again. Mm -hmm. That's what I feel is, is so misunderstood from the younger generation. You need to make sure that you have resolve in you, you have composure, because as soon as you open your mouth and say something you're going to regret, <laughs> those doors will close. And it seems like as hard maybe as sometimes have been for you, you've been able to say, you know what, like, I need to make sure that I keep my composure, stay true to myself, don't allow this moment to get the best of me. I'm sure that's probably something you're thankful for that uh, has helped you now. Oh, because there's some things I want to say. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, uh, there's a way to go about everything. Mm -hmm. And for the younger generation out there, you have to know where everything came from, especially here in, in the U.S. And mm -hmm. I think that you have to, and I'm not saying to pay homage and like to put people on pedestals, but I'm like, understand the sacrifice that people made, whether it's on the men's side or women's side, to elevate our sport. And when you're getting on chartered flights and when you're doing this and you're doing that, remember that that didn't exist. Remember that we stayed in Roach, Roach motels. Remember that we didn't have clothes. We had to give our practice uniforms back before we went home. Like, remember all of those things to understand where you are today and give respect to get respect. Mm. And that's I'll just keep saying that. <laughs> no, I love that. Something that I heard you say on a different podcast, you said that this generation, I think it was before the CBA, before everything was finalized. But I think you were like, we need to stop saying thank you for what we have and continue to push the agenda. You can get so caught up in them showing you, hey, this is how far we've gone and you should be thankful for that. But I think, again, you and the 99ers group who have continued your legacy and pushing forward with that have said, no, 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 we're not just thankful for that. We're going to continue to push. And for that was equal. part of the thing. It was like that was how we were treated. It was like, just be thankful. Just be thankful you're having a World Cup or just be thankful you have grass to play on or, or some balls. And it was just like, what? Not just my, this generation now and, um, you know, the Alex Morgans and the Sauerbruns and the Rapino, and they've really pushed the agenda forward. They have the platform built on the 91ers, built on the 99ers to have the platform to do that. And I think that, you know, you're seeing it across the world now. I mean, you look at England, who's killing it and they're selling out Wembley. You know, all of a sudden there's like a light that's going off in like local like countries going, oh, you know, we can make money off them, which is what it comes down to. I'm sorry to say, but we can make money off them. But it's always been there. You know, it's it's not there's no light bulb. There's no like it's always been there. You just had to see it and believe in it and believe that it's not just a men's sport in your countries. It's not anything. So now we're seeing equal pay in a lot of countries across the board. You know, yes, we built the platform, but it has to stay up somehow. And mm. this generation is doing that. And then some. Yeah. Some of you talked about, too, and what I read was for the 99 World Cup, they had you guys ready to go at, at college stadiums. Like, oh, yeah. They didn't think you guys were going to sell out. And as soon as yeah. like tickets started to go out, they started realizing, oh, boy. we got Well, actually, it was before that. The, the organizing committee, Marla Messing and them, they actually said no. They said, no, we believe that we're going to we're putting this in NFL stadiums. And FIFA and everybody were like, no, it should be in college stadiums and some of the local organ. No, it's going to be in NFL stadiums. Mm -hmm. And from that day one, that kickoff at Giant Stadium totally sold out. It was apparent that, you know, there was some. And then if you go back even before that to the 96 Olympics, when we were selling out in Georgia, in Athens, the excuse for us, like having. 60,000 people at that game was because it was the Olympics and people just already have tickets and there's someplace to go. Mm. Do you know what I mean? So it, we couldn't, like, you can win. <laughs> yeah. And so then the fact that that was the big thing, the fact that in 99 we were selling out all these stadiums and eventually the Rose Bowl and everything was that we're not attached to anything. We're not attached to a men's mm. thing. We're not attached to the Olympics. This is just women on their own having an event. And that kind of really set the stage. Because I'm pushing the end zone further and further for yeah, you guys. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. I remember, I can't remember, um, San Jose, was it the earth earthquake, right? Mm -hmm. They had a game after our semifinal at Stanford Stadium. Wow. And I don't know if in the mindset it was like, okay, well, 
this will get more people to the women's. I think it was total opposite <laughs> that happened. And I feel bad for them because, like, you know, we sold out Stanford Stadium and then it emptied. <laughs> like, you know, I love you guys, but it's a true story. <laughs> so, wow. Yeah. Again, it's it's tough, too, because you want to keep the main thing the main thing. And it's for you guys to continue to have a platform. You have to continue to win. And I think that's that's obviously the... Were there internal conversations from tournament yeah. to tournament? Yeah. So what were some? Well, what were I mean, like? one of the hardest things was I think the the whole everything would be different had we lost the game to Germany, mm. um, in the quarterfinals. The own goal. Yeah, the um second half comeback when Shannon McAllen came in and hit the corner kick to Joy, the own goal by Brandy, and then Brandy scored the winning goal. And so I think that things would have been different. We would have been out of the tournament, right? So you don't have maybe you don't have a sold out. Rose Bowl, and you don't have the iconic penalty kick mm-hmm. and this iconic save. Let's talk <laughs> about that. Um, and you don't have those things. And would how would that have affected the face of women's soccer in the world? Mm. Um, and I think that yeah, there were a lot of internal conversations. There was a lot of pressure. Mm. What were you? How were you guys handling it? Were for your role as well in that situation? Were you also more of an extrovert in those conversations? Were you kind of like uh, trying to? provide solutions or were you more kind of like okay there's our leaders and there's people who are going to be doing that we were always a part of every conversation Mm. like we always had team phone calls it was never like okay you know julie carla you guys figure this out whatever you decide we'll follow no 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 like it was like always group conversations always group decisions Mm. and are you asking me if i was an extrovert come on (laughs) (laughs) It's like, uh, could you ever see me sitting in the corner and not saying anything? No, I just, I, I didn't know. I just, this is why I have you on to have clarification. <laughs> no. Mm. Okay. So now we'll get out again. We'll get through your career and go, st- you know, step by step for every milestone that you had in your career with well, there were a few. Um, but I also kind of want to get to the early days and get to know you and, and kind of what your childhood was like. Um, awesome. I mean, no complaints whatsoever. My family would love to hear me say that. I grew up in Princeton, New Jersey, and it was back in the time when you didn't stay inside. It was get outside, play a sport, do what you can. Amazing community. My parents still live there now. I'm going to see them this weekend. And so it's just, you know, it was my, whatever my brother did, I did, you know, and so he started playing soccer. So I played soccer and he wanted to practice. So he stuck me up against a fence and shot balls at me and then there goes my goalkeeper <laughs> career. Um, and, you know, I was given every opportunity and outlet that I wanted to. And, and, you know, I was allowed to make my own decisions. I played every sport under the book and kind of settled. Once I got into high school, settled into soccer and lacrosse, where I was recruited for college for lacrosse as well. But then by that time, I had started going on trips with the national team. So it kind of knew that I had to make a choice. Then I stayed local and I went, no, I didn't go to Princeton. I went to Rutgers (laughs) and I was full on with the national team at that point and stuff. So it just kind of like blossomed out of that. Mm. I kind of want to know a little (laughs) bit more about how you got to the national team. Was it one camp and you you started to shine? or It kind of was, but it wasn't a national team. It was ODP and I was just a kid nobody had heard of. I was 15 and I was playing up. Um, or 16 playing up for U19s or whatever it was. And I went to like an ODP camp. And the next thing I know, it was just like, you're on the regional team and so on and so forth. And then next thing I know, I was brought into a national team camp. And this is before the 91 World Cup. And so, you know, I did make the 91 team. I was 17 or whatever it was, but that was my start into camps. And so I was like, okay. And then we went on like a trip, I think it was to Bulgaria something and basically it was the first official like maybe u19 or u20 national team basically they took michelle acres off the team and sent mia and everybody else (laughs) you know what i mean it was like that was the equivalent of like the youth team and it was like michelle and the man those guys got taken off like we left two people behind and that was it and it was just it was that it was literally that fast which isn't normal But it's you never know. You never know. I was playing local club and somebody said play ODP and I did. And mm. that was the end of that. How did a, a young, young Saskia Weber deal with the attention and the fame that came with being on the national team? Um, the attention to something like that was more within the community. Like it was like you go going to ODP or going to like tournaments and stuff. And people within soccer knew who you were. The notoriety and stuff really didn't come until around 99. 
like yes mia was doing commercials and and stuff like that but for the broad spectrum of the team you know that's when it really kind of hit hit so in your community though when you were i I know how i dealt with those things and you kind of have a little bit of a big head and you walk around and those moments can either determine if you're somebody who is going to in fair weather moments just kind of like live that moment and that's kind of what you live for or that's just kind of like the tip of the iceberg for some people and that creates even more hunger for you. So I think you fell into more of the latter. I think it was more hunger for me. And it wasn't, I had my friends and, and, and stuff like that. There was also negative that came with it. You had the, the mean comments and the nasty things and you just shook those off and mm. it just gave you more hunger. It's like, what else is out there? How so? What, what were some of the things that were Oh, if I made a mistake, it was like, you know, you would just hear the snarky comments or something from just people that were jealous or whatever you have and you shake it off i mean i grew up with that so being biracial i grew up with it so i was definitely teflon at that point it was it was a shotgun type of thing for me getting into you know odp making like the regional team and then the national team all within a year that was quick and then was Rutgers at that time before you committed and went to that university where were they a top program in the country no, I mean, only 12 teams were in a national championship at that time. And so, you know, obviously the juggernaut was U- UNC. And I don't think UCLA had a team at that time. Like it was mostly East Coast teams were the sh- in like stronghold. But um, Rutgers was top 20. But it was for me, it was I wanted to stay. My goalkeeper coaches were there on the men's and the women's side. And I wanted to stay near home. And it was just insulated like that. It was mm. it was the right decision. We talk about you and I, the Jersey connection, and you have so many top goalkeepers that have come <laughs> from there. So who were kind of some of your early mentors around that time? Well, I wouldn't say, I mean, Paul Blodgett is, um, was my coach and Tim Mulqueen. Um, those are my coaches growing up. So, you know, growing up, they're going to kill me. They weren't aren't that much older than me. But I think at that time, Jersey was just a hotbed. I mean, you had Tab Ramos, you had Tony Miola, you had all those guys that were on the 94 team and stuff coming out of New Jersey, that it was just the place to be. For, I mean, then you look even moving forward, you're going to look at Casey Murphy, you look at Timmy Howard, you know, if you want to be a goalkeeper, go to New <laughs> Jersey. <laughs> what is it about New Jersey that makes goalkeepers have that I guess that thick skin not that Tab's a goalkeeper I was just throwing names out there (laughs) um I think we were ahead of the game when it came to identifying that goalkeepers needed specific training and I think that that long ago for me to have a private goalkeeper coach and for that to be identified on the Rutgers teams where you had a goalkeeper coach and the men and the women and even today isn't like implemented as it should be and taken to the level that it should be we've talked about that a lot where Mm -hmm. like every team should have a full-time goalkeeper coach not part-time not like some kid out of college that's you know (laughs) stuff like that it should be a full-time goalkeeper coach taken just as serious as any other coach or assistant coach and we were already there with that in Mm -hmm. New Jersey and I think that's why you see and have seen a lineage of goalkeepers coming from New Jersey or it's in the water (laughs) it could be in the water yeah (laughs) what were you like as a as a young goalkeeper then what were physical traits that you had but also too on the emotional side what do you think separated you um I think for me I was incredibly athletic but I was also incredible like very technical so I didn't just rely on my athleticism to to make saves Mm. and I think you can see that in my approach to commentating and my analysis of players and games and stuff like I'm like hey the left knee the left balance on the left toe was off but like that's really what I break down it's how I was taught and how I analyze my own game Mm -hmm. I think from Paul and Tim and everybody I there was a sense of Paul's very zen (laughs) so I think that that wore off on me as well like I was never in a coaching environment that I was getting yelled at or screamed at Mm. or made to feel if I made a mistake it was the end of the world like it was everything was a learning experience and how do I grow from it and that's how I coach and that's how I pretty much move forward in life Mm. and I think that that worked very well for me and so when I trained it was never like I I wouldn't get heady I wouldn't get if something went wrong I wouldn't pout I went you just got up dusted off and and made the next save don't follow one mistake by another like and so I think if you fast forward to the 99 team Brian and I are incredibly similar like that which is why we spent so many years as one and one and a half I like to say one (laughs) and a half I don't like to say two one and one and a half together because 
we complemented each other in that. Like we're very similar in the way we approach training, the way we approach games, the way we approach being teammates and everything and supporting each other. So, you know, that's who I was as a player. Mm. Now for you having someone who's level-headed and somebody who can give you, I guess that perspective that we all need every now and again, when, you know, shit hits the fan. Yeah. And so uh, having Paul be that source for you, how have you translated that with your goalkeepers today? I, I'm incredibly similar. Like, let's discuss it. You know, especially at the level I've gotten to coach at, coaching for UCLA and and then being able to break down pro goalkeepers, which we do on our podcast, and then now being able to analyze them. And on the broadcast, I think that I approach everything incredibly similar and it's a learning experience. And I, I'm giving you the tools to self-coach yourself. I can't be on the field with you. And if you can make adjustments in the run of play during a game without me having to yell at you because it's not what I want to do and that's not going to solve anything like what tools am I giving you to fix this problems mm. and that's a discussion it's not me yelling at you yeah. it's it's you know what are you seeing what aren't you seeing how can we adjust it and I approached my game and my coaching exactly like that you're creating almost self-sufficient goalkeepers a- versus, yeah, reliant on you absolutely yeah. mm. Okay, so now you... You're like, mm. <laughs> <laughs> No, no. I think it's a... Uh... But not every goalkeeper responds to things. I think those are tools that you give to goalkeepers, absolutely. But some goalkeepers... I don't really like to say some goalkeepers need to be yelled at. Every goalkeeper re- responds differently to certain stimulants. And I think that if somebody needs a little like extra oomph and push, that's one thing. But what is the core of that? Are you still teaching in that moment? Or are you just screaming at them? I think that's important to be able to keep it in your back pocket. I think uh, here at Cal State LA, we we had our head coach, and and every now and again, he would see me kind of trying to express myself a little bit too much, trying to over communicate and mm-hmm. trying to implement all the things that I felt that I could change in a goalkeeper. And he was like, "Look, Omar, at the end of the day, I'm always going to support you, and I'm going to you know I'm going to have you coach your goalkeepers, but also to recognize that you need to have something in the back pocket where if they're acting wrong or they're not uh, you know coming to training in the right mindset." you have it in your back pocket so you can use that voice Yeah. versus you've used it so many times. Now there's no change of tone. Yeah. And it's, it's just like, it's same level and they, they don't respond. And trust me, there were times at UCLA when the the back pocket (laughs) voice came out and the whole team stopped Mm. because they were so used to me just handling things a certain way that it's true. When like, I was like, listen, like, get in here and they could tell I was upset and that just doesn't go for the goalkeepers because, you know, something was just not, wasn't resonating, wasn't translating. There was a different tone. Mm. For you, when you made a mistake early in your career, how did uh, a young Saskia, how did she respond to those things? Well, I mean, we might have to call my parents on that one, but um, (laughs) honestly, like I like to think, and from what I remember, (laughs) um, it amped me up. If it's in training, I got the next one. You know, and it, it gave me more incentive to work harder, to get better and everything like that. And so that was kind of like my fallback. It was just like if I consistently made a mistake, it was like figure out why you're consistently making it. But honestly, if I made a mistake, it was added fuel to the fire to not make another one and to show my stuff, but not not to the detriment of making the wrong choices. Mm. And I think you see kids do that to, okay, you make a mistake. Well, now I'm going to go harder. But going harder doesn't mean make a wrong choice. Like uh, going for a through ball that you still shouldn't be going for, you know, but trying to prove because you you got beaten on a breakaway before. So it's still making the right decisions. I think we talk about too, it's like you have to be almost self-aware enough to know that you can't reclaim that confidence, the trust in everybody right away. It needs to be a process. And I think us as coaches, we can make you aware of it. But also, too, internally, you have to be the one to self-regulate. Mm-hmm. And once you self-regulate, I think as you get older and as you get into higher competitions, the amount of time that you can sulk and be upset about something, it diminishes. It, the, oh, absolutely. Yeah. Because that's what you see as a coach. And I don't need to take the time to pull you out of it. Why are you sulking? I say this all the time. Are you sulking to let me know that you made a mistake? Like, we all know. Yeah. Like, you know, like, move on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, our coach at uh, LFC too, he always talks about how, like, when you watch players, you can kind of see if they make strides by seeing if they can do multiple actions in a row. And you see some players who can do that first action really well, turn out of pressure, and then the next pass is a, a bad pass. Mm-hmm. And then you start to see how that can turn into a spiral throughout the game. And I think that's where I look at goalkeepers now in that, in that light in the sense of, like you're saying, don't sulk just to 
try to get attention and have people. Exactly. Yeah. And I, there were times I'll, I'll bring Bri up with this. Bri could make a, a mistake or not come up with a say, which was rare, but you would never know she made a mistake because there was nothing in her demeanor that let you know she made a mistake. Mm-hmm. It was just, okay, and it's moved on. And so, and I, I was the same way. I was like, okay, move on to the next thing. If you sit there and wallow in it, well, now we all can't get the mistake you made out of our minds, and that's all I'm thinking about now. You know, and I've looked at keepers that have, even something as simple as shanking a punt and like feeling them look at me from the game on this. I'm like, what? <laughs> you know, move on. Like, yeah. we all know. I know. I know you shanked. We all know it's it's out of bounds. Mm. <laughs> you know, like, but I think that, again, don't sulk. Don't wallow in it. And I was never that goalkeeper. Mm. Okay. So I kind of want to talk to you a little bit about your <laughs> accolades now at Rutgers. Uh-oh. <laughs> this is, I know it's good. It's good. Four-year starter at the university. You were an All-American and you were Missouri Athletic Club goalkeeper of the year 92, finished with a school record of 34 shutouts, first female soccer player to be inducted into the Rutgers Athletic Hall of Fame. Mm. Um, hearing that, do you <laughs> remember your career there in this in that same light? Yeah, I think the thing that I'm really proud of with that, with those accolades and everything, was number one, they don't give the Mac Award to goalkeepers anymore. I think me and Brad Friedel won that year. It was it, it so it was a field player award and a goalkeeper award. So mm. that was kind of cool. Uh, why they don't do that anymore, I don't know. <laughs> um, I think that people didn't realize the the goal. I'm not a statistician. Like I'm not really deep on that. But the amount of saves per game and my goals against average because I was getting shelled. <laughs> and I love you guys at Rutgers, but you know I was getting shelled, and it was like. Nine saves a game, 10 saves a game. And so to come up with it with that many shutouts and stuff, that's what was big to me. And to still be like to have the number one goals against average in the country that senior year and still be getting shelled. And so I think number two is I think Tracy Dukar, Tracy Noonan, and she was at UNC. So you look at like she had 10 saves all year and I had 10 saves in a game. And I'm not like I'm not patting myself on the back, but it was something I had a conversation with Anton Darns about, I think my sophomore year, he was a national team coach and him saying that the experience that I was getting on the field for Rutgers that, that I couldn't get anywhere else. And again, I love my team, but it was being a part of every single game. And if I didn't have a good game, it affected the team. Like, you, you know what I'm saying? It yeah, wasn't yeah. like, all right, I had no shots, maybe one goal against one, three, nothing or no shots, no goals. It was. I was busy mm. and that's what put me onto the national team. That's what gave me my career was that experience of every situation <laughs> you could ever imagine and actually being able to shake off two goal games and everything and, and or one goal games or three goal games and being able to shake that off and come back. So um, that's what I see when I hear those accolades. I think it'd be different for me if it was like, not that anybody skates through, but if it was like, yeah, all right, I had 10 saves this season or something, then it would be like, oh, yeah, it, I put the work in, so I'm kind of proud of it. <laughs> how did you, how, how does someone handle that knowing every single game you're going to be shelled? Like, what's the mental adversity you're doing? A lot of little things you do <laughs> just to get yourself mentally prepared. Um, I don't think I would have wanted it any other way. You know, I think with my personality, I wanted to be a part of every game. I wanted to ha- make a difference every time I stepped on the field. You know, most coaches will say, well, if your goalkeeper has to make a difference every time they step on the field, there's an issue. But, you know, for me, that's what I wanted. I wanted to be a part of it. And advice to young goalkeepers out there who are maybe trying to decide if they want to go to a school that maybe isn't as highly ranked, but they have an opportunity to play four years and have those opportunities, maybe like you did, and see it from your perspective of like, this gave me an opportunity to showcase myself a little bit more versus maybe going to a top university, which rightly so, if you can get there, go for it. Yeah, but look at some of the girl, look at some of the keepers that recruited for the NWSL this year. I mean, you have Vanderbilt, you have several goalkeepers that weren't at top schools at all, but are phenomenal goalkeepers and they showed their stuff. And then you have other goalkeepers that were at major, major universities and didn't get to show. Now it's a little different though, I think, because you, you get brought into camps and you can show there mm-hmm. to go to the next level. But I think that, you know, if you can be at a mid-range university and it's very rare that a freshman goes into play but if you can get in there at least three years or redshirt your freshman year and go for four years after that and play and and compete yeah then do it all the all the top 
schools are saying, oh, God, Saskia, what are you saying right now? (laughs) I mean, look, if you can go to UCLA and they're national champions, go to UCLA. I'm not saying that, you know, because also you're getting that level of training. So if your goal is to go pro and you want to play at that level, like you're also surrounding yourself by the field players, the best players in the country. Game experience is the best period, but going against, you know, Sunshine Fontes in practice is probably really good too. Yeah. And were there any aspirations post Rutgers to go play with the national team? Because I know you got a little taste of it, but was that now? Yeah, I had been traveling with the national team. So my the whole time I was at Rutgers, I was in the spring. We would travel summer. I was doing friendlies, this, that, and the other. And then, then and then went to the 95 World Cup right after I graduated, mm. um, which nobody really talks about because we got third. Um, <laughs> it's like the lost World Cup out there. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> and it's like there was a World Cup in there. Um, and then from there, I had to find a place to play. There was no pro league. There was nothing. So I ended up going to Japan after 95 World Cup. In 96, I went to Japan. So I spent three years in Japan, well, two and a half years in Japan playing mm-hmm. pro to get myself prepared and everything to be. And I'd come back and be with the national team, go on trips and stuff, and then going into 99. So 95 World Cup, though, what? Uh, you talk Sweden. about it. Yeah, okay. So <laughs> it was a uh, kind of swept under the rug in the history of, of I guess. Women's soccer in the United States yeah. kind of swept under the rug. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We lost in Norway in the semifinals. We got third. And it was just. Yeah, we don't talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> but for for you being, it was great. It was great for me. Yeah, what was that experience? I mean, it was awesome. Uh, you know, Brian and I were there again together, and Harv, and that's the infamous World Cup where Mia Hamm played goal because Bry got red carded for putting the ball outside of the box. Most ridiculous, not a yellow, a red. <laughs> it was ridiculous um, for dropping, and then like the follow through was outside the box. So we were all out of subs then because you didn't have the rules you have now, mm-hmm. and uh, Mia played goal. Wow. And then I played the next game against Australia. Yeah. So that was 95. <laughs> <laughs> and uh I know you and you and uh you and Bri have I mean you guys are I'm sure friends till this day. Yeah, I had dinner with her a month ago. Oh, that's great. Then okay, so <laughs> I just had one and one and a half and, mm-hmm. and, and you guys competed for for so many years. And it's funny, I talked to some people and it's just like there was one decision away from you essentially having a, di- a much different career than kind of how it all shaped out yeah i mean the greatest number two in history um <laughs> but you know and we know as goalkeepers the amount of games i was i was rostered for compared to caps like are just they're unbalanced you mm-hmm. don't you don't sub so it's like tom brady if what was it drew bledsoe or whoever doesn't get hurt drew bledsoe, yeah you know and so you know but we were teammates and you don't wish for that and we just wish for success yeah and that's how it was i mean that first game in the world cup she went down like five minutes in so it's a really funny story so like 10 minutes in the game she gets like she goes down and like this gasp with seventy five thousand people and i'm like f- trying to fumble around find my gloves and everything <laughs> like that and tish is like sitting there watching me and then like bry gets up and shakes it off and i put down the things <laughs> tish is like how's that load of shit in your pants <laughs> <laughs> Like, I was good with it, though. I was like, no, Tish, I'm good. I'm good, man. I was huge, deep breath. Um, but I was always ready to play. And and every time I did play, Bri was just as supportive as me as mm. as well. So. Yeah, because yeah, I think you got, if I have my uh, situation or my, my notes here correct, you had your first appearance in, in 1992. You were 21 years old against Norway. Uh-huh. And then in 93, you became the team starting goalkeeper for most of the year. Mm-hmm. You had 12 matches. So then... How was stepping into a role that you've been preparing for all your life in that calendar year you were representing as the number one? So what was, I guess, that time of your life like? It was it was great. It was different than I think it is now. I think, you know, you're playing those 12 matches like on college high school fields and college fields. And it it wasn't like every single game was on ESPN or something Mm -hmm. like that. And we were building to the 95 World Cup. And so, you know, Bri came in and then it became a battle between the two of us. And then going into 95, she won the spot. And then it was just kind of like the way it was Mm. for for, for a long time. Yeah. But anytime you play for the U.S., it's awesome. No, I'm sure. Yeah, Yeah. I think that's the getting to know you more. It just speaks to, I guess, to you and just like you never really act as if you were on the national team you don't really you don't really i'm sorry you don't really have this like uh like you said it's this arrogance you don't carry yourself with that i think if you're with a lot of us from 99 and from that nobody does and i i, I know you'll see a mia ham and you'll see people and be like oh but 
Because that's not who we were. There was no place for that. We were humble. You had to be. Yeah. You know, security had to come get off us off the field because we didn't want to stop signing autographs. Like, you know, we would stop and talk to every everybody. We do grassroots events. We had to build this sport. You can't be arrogant and do that at the same time. And it stuck with you ever since. Oh yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I think making part of being a part of that team is because it's who you are innately and it's who we all were and that's what made a great team. You wouldn't have fit on the ninety nine team if you were some arrogant ass that <laughs> thought you were better than anybody. Yeah. You wouldn't have been on the team. I mean that's again, that's the the company you keep and I feel like <laughs> you guys have a lot of were would it be safe to say that a lot of you guys experienced all of that from like the 91 up until 99, a lot of that same core group was with it, uh, each other? Yeah, a lot. Um, I mean, some, but the younger play- But when you look at like Fowdy, Mia, Lil, I could do it off the top of my head. Um, Joy, Brandy, Michelle. Yeah, a, a big core of, you know, the Fab Five and then, and then mm. more. Yeah. Okay, so having been around so many of those top players, with yourself included, obviously, <laughs> what would you say are like the keys to greatness? As a team? Let's talk about individually, kind of like uh, what you saw from each person. And they then never, nobody ever was satisfied and never thought they were good enough. Like, you'd think that sitting next to, like, Joy or sitting next to Lil or Mia, that they just knew how damn good they were and they were never satisfied. They never thought they were good enough. They they worried about the mistakes they made just, just as much as we all did. Like, they were humble. They got sad when we lost. They got, you know... They were just regular soccer players, yeah, and wanting to be better. Mm. All of them wanting to be better. Yeah, it's it's tough though. I think that's the you're just carrying so so much, and I think with the responsibility that came with you guys, kind of like going into the '99 World Cup and it being you know hosted in your home country, I think that yeah, that there was a lot its, behind that. Like, yeah, um, Title IX was up for review in the Senate. Like there was, it's like you know this is the first major women's event. There was a lot going on behind the scenes. Mm. That people didn't know about and you guys handled it with grace and laughter yeah <laughs> and and you know everybody could be made fun of and make fun of somebody else and it was just we were very insulated in the fact that we are a family we still are to this day i could show you on my phone right now that everybody texts everybody at least we're in a group chat and it goes off at least twice a week Mm. So everybody's talking to everybody, and it's 22 years later. <laughs> so. It's like the group is individually, yes, unsatisfied, and collectively, again, that kind of like rubbed off on everybody. But for you to make the move to Japan, getting ready for that, that 99 mm-hmm. World Cup, did you feel like that time that you spent there improved your chances or was like to be the starter for the 99 World Cup? Absolutely. I was getting shelled again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was because I was on a team that had just come up from the lower division. And so it was a rude awakening. And so I was get like, I remember one of the games, it was like six nothing or something like that. Oh, no. And I get an email from Tony Tachiko, who was a national team coach. He's like, really, Sasuke is six nothing? I was like, dude, I had like 20 saves. <laughs> and I was like, I'm like, are you kidding me right now? He's like, oh, okay. I was like, the ball wasn't outside of the 18. I was like, what do you want? And he was so supportive of it because he knew that there wasn't the opportunity here in the U.S. What am I going to do in that 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 three-year period to keep myself ready? Mm. Like we had spent, whenever we had to keep ourselves ready for camp, I was either training with Rutgers men. So whenever I was home, that's what I do. I go and train with Rutgers men, but I wasn't getting games in. And, you know, you had college kids that were, they're going to surpass you or something's going to happen. Or I had to go play and I had to get games in. And so I did. And that was the sacrifice I made. I don't really think it was a sacrifice. I got to play pro overseas. Yeah. But it had to happen for me to make the 99 team. And uh, you said Tony DeChico, and I think he is is remembered fondly in the goalkeeping community because he mm-hmm. had his his methods, he had his big camps that he do. Mm-hmm. But as a leader for your guys' team in 99, what do you remember about him? He was the best. I mean, he was the perfect fit for that 99 team. Um, just handling all of us, and he was like a, a dad. <laughs> like, you know, he was. Mm-hmm. And for me, especially as a goalkeeper, and a head coach. So to have what was my goalkeeper coach when Anson was the coach and then transition into the head coach and just having a deeper understanding of my position and, and of who I was as a goalkeeper and being able to be the head coach but also pay attention to us as well um, and give that equal love and attention, it just it fit perfectly for me. It yeah. was awesome. He was awesome. 
Yeah, he seems like a one of your mentors. Oh, say. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that goes without saying. I mean, I know I was talking about college mentors, but I mean, yeah, Tony was my entire national team career was spent with Tony. So, and he handled that situation with you and Bry and and with Grace because you again to understand what each of you are going through in that sense. I mean, I'm sure Bry didn't. Uh, was looking over her shoulder 24 seven because she knew that you I were hope coming. So. <laughs> um, yeah, I think that I think one of my best moments for 99 was and Tony understanding this was we were in New Jersey and we played some friendlies and then we were going the team was going on to North Carolina and then there was a break and then we were coming into national team to camp mm. back in New Jersey like you know, two weeks of camp before the World Cup. And I had spent my entire career waiting for that, like, list to go up on the door, on the trainer door. Like, are you going? You know, are you going to the next trip? Are you doing, or waiting for that call? My entire career, basically. And I I got called into, we were in New Jersey, and I got called into the hotel room, him and Lauren Gregg. And he sat me down and he said, I'm not going to take you to North Carolina. Of course, my heart freaking hit the floor. I was like, what? And he's just like, I want you to stay here in New Jersey, you know, visit with your parents, stuff like that. You've made the World Cup team. And this is two months before the announcement, like the wow. announcement. And he goes, I'm going to go and make a decision on the third goalkeeper in North Carolina. Then I need you to, I want you and Lori Fair to fly down to Mexico. That's a whole nother story. Mexico <laughs> City with the under 20s um, just to get games in. And then you'll meet back up then we'll all meet for the, he goes but i want you to know you made the team first time in my career anything i it was one of the best moments of my entire career mm-hmm. but i think for him as a goalkeeper he understood that and he understood the importance of okay enough with the list enough like waiting you know let's let her know like yeah. let's let's give her her she's earned it let's tell her you know and yeah. so i was like because i knew she was going yeah yeah <laughs> like, <laughs> mia knew she was going like you know yeah. so Ah, but then, like, the humility of that is that Joy, Joy um, Fawcett made a comment once, I think I read in an interview, that she always got stressed out when that list would go up. I'm like, mm. what? <laughs> like, like, what are you talking about? But that's the humility of the team that tells you right there. Yeah. And obviously, being a teammate of Mia Hams at the time, it's, <laughs> it's, it's so hard. I mean, when... The publicity comes and all the things come with being Mia Hamm. Mm-hmm. You you would say again she handled it as as gracefully as professionally as she could because I mean she was on in every commercial. I mean growing up, well too, she I would could see teach that. like a master class on how to handle that. Because here's the difference: when you have the players now, when you have multiple players, so you've got your Alex Morgans, you've got your Rapinos, you've got you know your up and comings like Alyssa Thompson now, or you know. It's spread out. There are people getting lots of attention, lots of publicity across the board. Back then, it was just Mia. Mm. Like, and it was like, that was, that's a lot to take on. Like, she was the face of it. Nike signed us, signed the National Soccer Federation. Mia was the face of it. She's the one in the commercials. She's one of it. That's a lot to take on and still be the best and try to win a World Cup. Yeah. You know, it's, it's it wasn't spread out. I mean, yes, Fowdy was, was like, I think Reebok, but that's my point. Mm. You know, now, it's kind of spread out. Now you have tons of celebrities and stars across the board, how they handle it. I think it was there was a learning curve back there. <laughs> For sure. Probably back when we weren't winning World Cups. But uh, she she uh, definitely set a bar. Mm. Did you guys feel as a team that you needed to support her and like trying to carry some of that weight for her? Yeah. I mean, we all had to do what we had to do, yeah. you know? And we also had to understand the stress she was under and you know, we'd be places that Mia wouldn't be there because Mia's in uh, interview or in this or that or the other. Like, we had to understand that at the same time. You can't get, like, jaded about it. <laughs> very true. Very true. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I think that's the, the wild part, too. I think a lot of people remember the last game and, like, how mm-hmm. it all ended and everything. And you guys had 90,000 people. It was just, <laughs> a, you know, crazy scene. But, like, even the first game you guys played, it was against Denmark. You guys had... I think, 76,000 I think yep you had broken the record and then rebroke it a few mu- a few weeks later uh-huh. so that again it it and you talked about it before on a different show it was like you guys driving up and everybody sh- talks about it and and we never knew like that's how like insane it was like we were coming in from you know where we were training and everybody tells this story when we're driving up the Jersey Turnpike now I'm from New Jersey and so is Chrissy Rampone and we're looking at each other like eh, maybe it's just like Holland Tunnel traffic <laughs> or like Lincoln Tunnel traffic to get into the city and slowly realizing and then all of a sudden like the police escort which we had never really had before, mm-hmm. taking us on the shoulder of the road of the turnpike and realizing every single car was going to the game. 
and that the backup was to park at Giant Stadium mm. and that the reality of that just hitting. Like, wow. oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> you know? uh, people say it all the time. It's like the watershed moment of kind of like that's where women's soccer had really arrived. Yes. And it proved to marketers, it proved to everybody that you guys actually do draw crowds. Given the proper resources, you guys can do something mm-hmm. with this. And so I, I'll talk about, you know, WUSA and, and that situation. But for you, post-World Cup, literally as it ended, what were your emotions as your team is sprinting on the field, your hair is painted, everything and like we, that? Most people don't realize that we... Well, Chrissy Rampone was the one that did my hair for all that stuff. If you look at the pictures, it was red, white, and blue, and then all of a sudden it's blonde. It's because it was gold. Mm. Because... Back then, if we had had TikTok and stuff like that and Twitter, <laughs> people would have realized we spray painted it on the field gold. Mm. Um, there are no words for that moment and how you felt. It was just pure ecstasy. It was. Okay. I remember going back into the dressing room and just be like, oh, thank God. Because there was a sense of relief because of responsibility. You know, you don't want to lose that game. Yeah. Um, and just pride in what everybody did and everybody accomplished and, you know, just being a part of it. So... It is a big relief moment. It is. People don't like. I remember sitting with Tish. We both had like a bottle of champagne, and we were sitting there, and it was just like, take a deep breath. You know, it was just like, whew. <laughs> okay, what do we do now? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know? Yeah. What did you do now after that? Oh, uh, well, we went out that night, um, and then it was weird because we were so used to like the humility of it. We were like, I remember. Them saying, "Okay, we're going to Disney World and doing that it was fun." You know, we were on the <laughs> on the float with Mickey and stuff like that, and then kind of being in the bus and making plans, like, "Hey, what are you going to do?" Oh, I got to fly back to Florida because that's where our home base was. Mm-hmm. Pack up my stuff, you know, this and that and the other. Get out of the apartment, go up to Jersey. Like, this was our conversation, and I remember Aaron Heifetz was like, "All right, so don't anybody make plans because we have to fly to New York and we have to see Letterman and we have to, you know, do this and then we have to go to the White House and this." And you're just like, "What?" <laughs> like, I mean, because my mentality was like, oh, "I got to pack up my stuff," yep. you know, because that was just who your thoughts, you know. And we didn't have like the ticket day parade. Damn, <laughs> I'm jealous of that. I do want to say to the 2015, 2019, I am jealous of that one. Mm. Especially being from like New York, New Jersey. <laughs> I'm like, oh man, that's cool. <laughs> um, yeah, and so then it was just, okay, what do we do now? <laughs> yeah, it's almost like that moment when you have to pinch yourself that it's, okay, like it, you get past the, we celebrate this, we enjoy mm. the moment, but now it's like, we have momentum. How do we use How this? How do we use it? Yeah. Yeah. And then stuff started happening. You know, then you get back and you, you you have the agents. And then then that's when you had asked me the question about, like, being visible or notoriety. And then it was like I was the only one that lived in New Jersey, New York. So I was going to a lot of events and appearances in New York. Nobody else lived there. And so it just started to kind of snowball from there. And then we started to get into talks about starting um, WSA. Yeah. What was your involvement in kind of starting all that? We were all on the board. So all of us were the founding members. And then I wouldn't say I was really on the finance, like the board board. Sure, like, sure. But but we were all part of it. And then getting allocated to teams, I was originally allocated to Philly, uh, which was great. It wasn't really a fit for me. So I was really psyched when we worked out a trade for me to go to New York. Mm. And then that's where I finished my career. I was actually looking up a lot of your highlights online. Is they have uh, Mike always asks where these they have a they have a YouTube channel. <laughs> they have YouTube. They dedicate it to I guess reproducing some of the games, like the actual uh-huh. like actual broadcast. Yeah. And I remember watching again doing research. I was just watching and I was like, wow, it's just seeing you now compared to there. It's just like you could see that same attention to like just linear focus to what you're doing. Yeah. And it was a uh, it was just unique for me because I know you so well now to see you at like your prime of your career mm-hmm. for me to see that was something unique yeah mike mike, uh, mike was telling me about that too and like sometimes some will pop up i was like hey i was all right <laughs> <laughs> yeah it was unfortunate i mean i know you guys had the momentum but like was there explain to me kind of how it all because i know the, the league ended up folding i think that it's so different it was so different than it is now and with the commitment from you know like the networks like discovery and the people like time Warner, the people that backed it. I just think we didn't know what we know now. And I think that it's just my opinion. I think that the demographic that we were shooting at was wrong. You know, like you have to make a certain age bracket, love your team, your sport, because then the younger kids want to be the older kids and you becomes a lineage, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like, and so it was unfortunate, you know, but it was a start. 
And it was a start and we knew that there was something there. And I think that with trial and error, you know, here we are now with the NWSL and that's a whole nother, <laughs> that's a whole nother beast. Like it is. it's insane. Like starting that WSA where the NWSL is, is a dream. Like an angel city is exactly what we were talking about, mm-hmm. you know? And it, we're getting there. We've gotten there. You yeah. know, I'm excited for the Bay Area. Utah's coming back, stuff like that. It's going to be great. And it's great. What's also great is to see my team, people like Brandy and Allie and Daniel Slayton, as part of the founding group of that. And to yeah. have the input of us is amazing. So we're still a part of it. Yeah, yeah. All these, <laughs> all these years later, you guys really are. Mm-hmm. And you uh, finish up in New York, right? That was the last team yeah. you played for? Mm-hmm. Was the, the league folding? Was your kind of like, you know what, maybe I wrap this this career up? Or were you yeah, kind of Yeah, the league was up? folding. And at that point, my international career was over, maybe prematurely. I think at the time, just coaching and player differences. Mm. Um, may, you know, like with your role, you. Weren't... I think I think you know. There's a time when you. Ca- I can't be younger. I guess is the bottom line to it. Like if a coach comes in and they want to look for the younger players and see if they can develop a younger goalkeeper in that spot, then I can't. I could can do everything else. I can't be younger. And so you know, just my life was changing at the same time as well. And, you know, when the league shut down, I had my dual citizenship. I was like, do I do this again? Do I go to Europe and play and try to make a go of it again? Or am I just hanging it up? And I hung it up. And I think looking back on it, honestly, I, it was a premature decision. Mm. I, if I could go back, I probably wouldn't have um, retired as soon as I did. You would have gone. Used I would have probably gone and... to Europe and played, and I should have tried to make the next World Cup team or, or next Olympic team or something. I would have. I should have kept going. Was the writing on the wall that if you had kept going, there still wasn't enough convincing for them to say, "Yeah, we can, we can have you back on the team." I think that uh, it's it's a, there's a lot involved in it. I think I got called in like for another trip after the league had shut down, like for something like right around then. And I don't know where my mind and heart was at that time. We all, it all ebbs and flows, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe it was just the thought of, like I said, going to Europe again and and doing all that again was just too much. I had finally kind of gotten settled a bit in New York and I was just like, you know, but if I go back, I think I'd change that decision. Yeah, that's is that like a, just a small regret? That's like my only regret. Oh wow, it's a big one. Yeah, yeah. But it's probably my only one. I think I let outside things dictate my retirement, so mm. maybe a little premature. But it is what it is. <laughs> Act two. It is yes, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Dealing with things that are out of your control. How do, how does someone like you deal with those things? For me at the time, like I think for me, I knew that I had done everything I could possibly do to make myself the best goalkeeper I could be. That last camp I went into when I got cut, which hadn't happened in a very long time. When I got cut from that last camp, I remember knowing and in my meetings saying, and I I said this exactly, I was just like, I'm fit and I'm playing top of my game. And when I'm away from here, I'm doing everything I possibly can, but I can't get younger. And that's what you're telling me. And that yeah. was it. Yeah. How did you, how, I'm curious too, like how did you guys stay fit in those, you were training with Rutgers, uh-huh. right? The men's team and like mm-hmm. doing, and doing all that. Was that just you guys deciding and figuring out ways to keep mm-hmm. yourself, so you were. That on- was how I did it. Everybody found their own ways. I mean, you know, depending on where you lived, that was it. Like for me, I'm back, I was back in Jersey and I was in New York and I was like, what do I do? Well, I went to men's practices and. You know, Bob Riasa was awesome and Tim was still there. And so I trained with the goalkeepers. I trained with the men's team. I scrimmaged with them. I did everything I could with them. And that was how I had to keep myself game ready and fit. Mm-hmm. And then I'd go from there into the gym and I'd work out with my strength and conditioning coach at the university still. And, you know, and thank God for Rutgers for having that open to me and everything. But that was how we all had to find our own ways. Mm-hmm. That's a that's and that said something about mentality for that team and that group of girls because you had to structure it yourself. It's very easy for you not to get out of bed and say, yeah, I'll go for a jog or something like that. But is that making you the best? Or nowadays, it's structured. It's more structured for you. It was just like you get up, clock in, you go to you go to Rutgers men's practice, you go to the gym, you go here. I mean, I did everything. Like Wednesdays, I'd meet with the track coach and I'd work on like explosiveness off the block and stuff like that. Like I'd train with the women's basketball team and work on footwork and stuff. I did everything I could possibly do to, to keep myself fit and busy. 
When I retired, that's a different story. <laughs> what was uh, in, in Japan? In Japan, what were the resources like over there? Oh, they were great. I mean, we had an awesome gym right down the street. And so, I mean, there was nothing else to do. So like you would like <laughs> go to practice, I'd go to the gym, do a hundred laps in the pool, then I'd lift, then I'd go home, then I'd go back to the gym because I was bored. Like it was, that's all you did, <laughs> you know? Was the stress of not coming back fit enough for the national team? Was that a stress uh, that killed you? It was just a stress that was always over your head. Yeah. I was always stressed about it. It was just this fear. It's really funny though, because... There was always this fear, you know, you'd come in, you get off the plane, you have to run your fitness test. And back then it was like cones. It wasn't really the beat test and stuff like that. And I was always, there's so much anxiety about it, but I always passed them. I think I missed them once. I cramped and missed it once <laughs> in my entire career. The old cramp trick. And, and I think somebody said to me, well, why were you always so stressed about fitness? What happened when you didn't pass that one time? I go, uh, nothing. And they go, what do you mean? I go, did you get cut? No. Did you go on the trip? Yeah. So what happened when you didn't pass? I was like, damn, nothing. <laughs> I was like, I never thought about it that way, but it kept you on your toes. You always got to check every box just yeah. in case anything happens there. Yeah. Okay. So now after you were in New York and then, you know, you were settled down after your career ended, what were the next few steps for you? Really, it was just finding that path. Back then, like I said, I wanted to get into broadcasting, but there wasn't a really a place for it. And unless, also because they weren't broadcasting women's soccer. So, you know, it was like either you were Julie or like there was some college stuff. I did a little bit of college stuff, but not really because it wasn't really being broadcast. So there just wasn't a place to land for that. And then I took a very long pause and stepped away from soccer. Like I just, I got into television and did stuff. I moved out to LA. Just... Got into a lot of different things, let's just put it that way. And then eventually just kind of got dragged back into it, you know? Yeah. Plenty of friends out here, they're like, hey, will you come coach a kid I know? And like, you know, one private turned into director of goalkeeping for a club. Like two years later, then you're assistant coach at UCLA. Mm. <laughs> so, and then an owner of Angel City. To, to <laughs> see where, what you're doing now, I've always kind of like felt like what you were doing the podcast uh, inside the 18 and even doing now what you're doing with broadcasting. I always felt that you had that personality to do that, but was coaching ever something that was on your radar or was that you, I've stepped away long enough. This is my in back into the game. Um, I think that coaching was something inside me, but it was never something that I was like, I want to be a college head coach or, you know, or anything like that. Like it was something I knew I, I could do, you know, I knew how to coach and mm -hmm. I knew, I think I had something to say and I, and to teach and stuff. And I think that my time coaching club and everything was good for me because even coaching the little kids it helped me like get back to like how to analyze a player and how to mm -hmm. look at things and it kind of reignited that in me and it showed this part of me which le leads into being able to be an, an analyst and had I not gone through that path and just jumped right it would probably have been a little shakier yeah, yeah. yeah <laughs> for sure <laughs> you know yeah um I think but um for me, I was happy to go on the other side and be an analyst and everything. I can't kick balls forever. Again. <laughs> it's very true. It's very true. Let's be honest. <laughs> I mean, I think about that. I was like, God, I can't kick balls till I'm <laughs> 70. It's just not that. That's why I'm doing this. I, I, I saw early on, I was like, my knees are starting to bug me. I'm just not in the position to to do this for long term. Um but I think it's like, you know, I've I've walked around with you at the coaches convention and, and seeing all that. And you are a recognizable face. <laughs> Not now, but you always have been. But I think you coming back in and being at UCLA and then being a little bit more on TV and stuff, people started to recognize you a little bit more. Did that, I guess, you separating for as long as you did? What did you miss most about that? I think I just missed like the kind of some of the camaraderie, like seeing some old faces and stuff to me. I think I never took it like you said, like I'm so humble and stuff like that. I think I'm like, oh, you know, that person knows who I am. Like, you know, unassuming. It's yeah, yeah it's great. It's nice. I'm not going to say it's not. It's nice to know you had an impact and people and it's memorable. And it's nice to be, you know, that affirmation is it's, it's nice yeah. because of the amount of sacrifices you've made throughout your entire career in life. It's nice to know it's not gone unseen and forgotten and so yeah that's it's been great did you ever feel unseen and forgotten after it all said and done i think there was a time yeah mm. but i don't know if that was me just doing that to myself mm. you know like i think 
there was a time when you're just like, what now? What do I do? You know, like nobody cares. Yeah. You know, when I stepped away, I was like, ah, I can figure it out. I don't need that. But it's part of who you are. It's your DNA. I'm yeah. sorry. And and it's what I love and I do best. And, and you know, you kind of have to, at some point, you have to give in to that. <laughs> like, you're just like, okay, this is where I'm supposed to be. Yep. And I'm supposed to be a part of this for a reason. And letting go and understanding that and diving back in, you know, act two. Yes. And Angel City, and we're going to wrap it up here soon, but I want to talk about Angel City and how did that whole project come about, Mm -hmm. but also how was it presented to you? Um, How was it presented to me? I mean, talk to Julie and them, Julie Ehrman and them about how it came about, but it was Julie Foudy sending 12 of us an email saying, hey, you guys want to own a team? (laughs) (laughs) And when Julie asked you a question and you're like, okay, that sounds cool. You know, and then finding out what was going on. And of course, we all believed in, I mean, we knew what she was talking about and bringing a team to LA and being involved in it. And so we all got together as, you know, Angels 12 and we as an ownership, a sub ownership group have owned part of the team, but really just being involved. And like, I think that's where it differs for us as like, it's a huge ownership group, but where it differs for us as the players is we're the players, you mm-hmm. know, and so to be with Julia, Mia and Abby and the fairs and everybody and Tish and to see them all the time is great. Yeah. Um, other than text with them, but also, you know, to make an impact again, be a part of this. It would it would it would seriously suck to watch all of this unfold and not be a part of it, knowing that, you know, you help build that platform all those years ago and just being like, oh, yeah, you know. And to to have Julie Ehrman and to have, you know, Natalie Portman and all of them be like, no, we need you guys to be a part of this, like, mm-hmm. as well, and to be seen and remembered, and, and now to full-on be part of something that's absolutely incredible. What did you bring with you from your playing career that now you lend, I think, to the organization, <laughs> to the ownership group? What did you bring with you? My personality! <laughs> um, I think... You know, I get to, I get to go and like I'll do appearances and stuff and I'll talk to you like up and coming women uh, business owners and and help shine a light on what there is no ceiling whatsoever and just be a part of that momentum as well as um, being on the broadcasting side and keeping like I told you, keeping the past alive and having a voice out there and really like just being a part of everything. It's it's incredible for me. I mean, would I like to say I'm in the boardroom making like bank decisions and stuff? I'm absolutely not. (laughs) Okay. And people are like, can I get 10 tickets a game? I'm like calling the wrong person. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's nice to see. I think it's, it's, um, I don't know, for me to see you in, I won't say even like low moments, but like seeing you in those moments to kind of like, you know, before Angel City kind of kicked off and all that, seeing you kind of in that transition period Mm -hmm. of getting back into coaching and stuff. It was, uh, you were very vulnerable with me at times. And I would always be like, like you have so much to offer. And I just want to tell you like face to face that it's so nice to be able to see you offer everything that I know you knew you had in you, but now everybody gets to see it. I know there were moments that you had dealt with adversity, but I know you were able to find a way to push through. And now that you've pushed through, we're all benefactors of it. So thank Mm. you for doing that. Well, thank you. Yes. I like that. (laughs) Well, I want to leave you with one more question. Okay. How your legacy has shaped out so far. Are you happy with the legacy or are you happy that you're able to continue writing that legacy? Continue writing the legacy because I'm happy that I still have a voice in in this sport and um, still can make a change and impact. So Mm -hmm. I'm still writing it. Yes. And I'm excited to see where you take it, where you go from here. And the sky's the limit. I'm just excited for you to to continue commentating. And when you commentate, all the personality, all that just like <laughs> non-filter, everything that I know you for, mm-hmm. I'm excited to hear that come out as often as possible. And I know it, I don't, it hasn't come out just yet because I know it's still like the early days, but I just it's can't. It's getting there. Yeah, yeah. I know over time and, and hopefully you continue to be a, a mainstay and a voice in, in the women's game and comment some of the men's games too. I mean, that'd be, yeah, that'd be amazing right. as well. But um, Sas, thank you for your time. Thanks. I appreciate it. And uh, we'll talk soon. Okay. Awesome.